As threats to the United States multiply, the government will need growing numbers of capable civilians in national security. But creaky apparatus for hiring and clearing people gets in the way. That's from a detailed look by the Center for a New American Security. We get more now from senior fellow Catherine Kuzminski. Ms. Kuzminski, good to have you in. Thanks for having me. What made you look at the civilian workforce? And first of all, let's define our terms. That's probably half the civilian workforce of the government could be connected in some way to national security. That's right. It's a pretty substantial portion. Uh, There's over 800,000 civilians in DOD and the military departments alone. Uh, We also include things like the State Department, USAID, and parts of the government that you might not think about, so parts of the Department of the Treasury or the Department of Justice. Certainly, we've seen a lot of attention paid in the last couple of years to recruitment, military recruitment, but we forget that on the other side of that are a uh, network of civilians who both support and lead the military um, in our broader national security aims. And are there particular challenges to the government for getting people in to do that type of work versus getting people in to do procurement or housing policy analysis or oversight of programs in an inspector's general office, that type of thing. Certainly. So there's a significant amount of technical requirements that we have for especially our more senior civilians in national security. We think of things not only like STEM um, and cyber experts, but also thinking about uh, foreign experience, foreign language experience, in a lot of cases, a law degree or an advanced policy degree, deep data analytics. These are things that make the federal government run and make our policies operate well. And the challenge is that we have a number of people who are willing to spend the time to get those credentials. They're also willing to take a series of unpaid internships in Washington, D.C. It's a very geographically based career field, and it's not a cheap city to live in. And so we see folks taking out big student loans to pay for graduate degrees and then taking these unpaid internships. So they're there starts to become some challenges to actually accessing the paying jobs within the system. And part of the military's problem in recruiting new people for uniform services is that even though the country is growing, only, what do they say, something like 19 or 20 percent of 18-year-old youth are even capable of serving for whatever reason. They have criminal records or mm-hmm. they can't pass this or that test. They're not physically fit, whatever the case might be. Is a kind of parallel thing happening in the civilian side, the country is growing, but more and more graduates are coming out of four-year institutions that can't read or do math. It's a combination of things. So when we think of the military recruiting example, there's both the ability to meet standards and the interest in serving. And those two factors are also present on the civilian side. So when we think of those who are are able to meet the standards, we are looking at a highly educated population and, and individuals who've spent years building both their academic credentials and their experience. But we also see real competition for those skill sets among the private sector or out in Silicon Valley or up on Wall Street. And so capturing the part of the market that's interested in taking their talents to serve in federal government, where they might earn less and they might have longer days, but they're really tied to the sense of mission is really important. Yes, because there's a difference between the private sector and the public sector in just the norms and culture that surround civil service and in the way agencies operate. And then there are particular demands on security of people or security practices by people working in Mm -hmm. national security that may or may not be appealing to people. You know, some agencies, you have to leave your cell phone in a little tiny locker all day, this kind of thing. 
Yeah. And and we also see we conducted a survey of both undergraduate and graduate students and then also folks who are already in the professional workforce or who might have had government service in the past. And we found in our survey sample of about 260 individuals, when we asked the question, would you rather take a job in the federal government, your dream job in the federal government, or a similar job in the private sector that pays twice as much? A, what are the considerations that you're weighing as you make that decision? And B, what is your decision? And it came down to exactly 50-50, which was surprising to us for a group of individuals who took the time to actually take this survey because they must have some sort of interest in government service to sit down and take this time. And so we did a little more digging on, well, what is it? Is it the pay? And the reality is it was not the pay per se. It was the ability to start their career or start their job right away. There's the expectation among American youth um, and I think among all generations that if you apply for a job, you get a job offer that you start within a month, certainly within about two weeks is the norm. But what happens if you have to wait a year and a half to two years to make it in the door in the first place? And as I mentioned, they're already taking out student loan debt, living in an expensive city and taking a series of unpaid internships. It becomes really challenging to hold on to the dream of serving in government if a private sector option is something that's available right We're speaking with Catherine Kuzminski. She's senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. And what about the clearance process? Because that seems to gum up the works. And no matter what they do, it always takes a long time. And now there's reports about the apparatus for doing this Mm -hmm. is late and not working as well as it should, costing a lot of money just in the news reports of recent days. What about the security clearance process itself? Is that an impediment to building or maintaining that civilian workforce? Certainly. So, And this is a perennial problem. It's not a new one. And in fact, the federal government has made great strides since about 2019 when there's been a series of reforms to increasing the efficiency of the process. But it's still a lengthy process. And one of the things that was surprising in both our survey work and our group analysis was that the effects for first-generation Americans, we simultaneously heard consistently that they had an extra sense of mission. They recognize what this country provided for their family. They want to serve. And at the same time that it was really hindering their ability to make it through the clearance process, whether it's because they still maintain foreign contacts in family members who still live overseas, or because it's a bit more challenging on the financial side of the house, it has led to some frustrations for them in the clearance process. And it was not a question we initially intended to set out looking at what are the impacts on first-generation Americans, but it was a fairly significant and repeated uh, finding that we had. To say nothing about the form you have to fill out, That's right. which is epic <laughs> in its size. And uh, I'm not sure anyone could get all the answers right, even if you were trying to. Now, you FOIA'd some data on the profile of people serving from the Office of Personnel Management. What did you need to FOIA from them and what were you trying to learn? And what did you learn from that information? Yeah, so one of the questions that we had going in was it had been 20 years since 9-11 when we kicked off this project in 2021 and the national security apparatus grew substantially over those two decades. So one of the questions that we had was as the national security apparatus grew over time, did representation among the federal government increase proportionately to what we see in society? Or did old trends hold? And so what we looked at was data based on gender, 
race and ethnicity and at each GS level. So the more junior levels through the more senior levels. And one of the questions was, who are we recruiting in? And then another question we were looking at was, is there evidence that people who join the federal government as a civil servant early on in their career, do they have a promotion path and do we retain them? We saw varied outcomes across the federal government. The Department of the Air Force civilian workforce was the most diverse that we saw across the military services and DOD. But still at the aggregate, it's about 25% of the overall DOD workforce in the GS system are women and 18% are minorities. So we still have some work to do in terms of the national security workforce representing broader U.S. statistics. Right. I guess the question then becomes, is this a function of the hiring process or is it a function of the applicants? Are the people that you want that are not represented, that are out there doing something else, applying in the first place? That's right. And that's a real question we were looking at. What is the sense of possibility that you could join the federal workforce? And we saw that there is kind of an over-representation on the coasts um, and in big cities and that we're missing large swaths of Americans, not because they're not interested, but because they don't necessarily see a path from how they get from a state school in the Midwest to a career in Washington, D.C. Yes, because some of the Army and military elements and I think some of the civilian national security types of related agencies have established partnerships and grant programs with HBCUs and so on, Spanish-serving institutions. Maybe over time that will help seed the application pool so that greater representation across the population will be making its way into government. That's right. And also the geographic representation. There are efforts to educate college career counselors or professors. One of the challenges that we heard from our focus group participants was that if you went to a school in the Midwest or in a place that didn't necessarily have ties to the federal government, even those advising them didn't know the difference between GS levels or what an appropriate application level might be for a federal position. And that's something that the federal government or even non Profits can do a better job of educating the educators on pathways, potential pathways for government service. And just briefly, what sorts of recommendations have you come up with, or are you still working on those? Yeah, so there's a couple of recommendations. One is at the congressional or executive level. So one of the big challenges we see is that there's a number of federal fellowships that are provided, the Boren Fellowship, uh, Fulbright, that take highly competent Americans and send them overseas to engage with the local population to really immerse in language learning. Particularly for the Bourne Fellows, those language skills tend to be languages that matter to our national security infrastructure, which might also mean that they're coming in contact with individuals who then hold up the security clearance process on the back end. And so one recommendation is to think through how you start the clearance process for someone you've already vetted through the fellowship program before they leave the country and get that process rolling and marking the fact that you know that they're going to come in contact with foreign individuals that's the purpose of the federally funded and highly selective program that's out there. Another area is thinking through how college and university employees can better educate themselves on educating current college students. And we do say that having a university focus is important because most of these jobs do require a college degree. And so enabling them both A, to access the alumni networks that might have already ended up in government, and B, just educating them on the different processes. And then lastly, individuals do bear some responsibility as well, but no one tells them up front that, hey, you might want to keep a list of every address you've ever had, or you might need to keep a list of foreign contacts, or if you're 
studying overseas that you need someone to see your living environment to be able to report on that for your security clearance. And it's too late to learn that when you've returned. Catherine Kuzminski is Senior Fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to her study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy 
standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right? And I enjoy casting that vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner 
than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can't. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.